Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I recently came across an amazing book, which I'm going to tell you about during the show. And the author is Hugh McLeod. I am delighted that I reached out and he was willing to be on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about Hugh. He's a consummate learner. He's a knowledge exchange advocate. He's a lecturer. He's worked as an adjunct professor at Griffith University Business School in Brisbane, Australia. He's also a senior fellow at the University of Toronto and Rotman School of Management, and he has held several executive leadership positions. He's had academic appointments providing an opportunity for him to engage in high-quality leadership conversations. He has authored and co-authored over 100 articles, essays, and papers on leadership and change. And he greatly cherishes the teaching environment and the profound unveilings it brings forth. He quotes, for me, the creation of a safe and participatory environment is crucial for all participants, conditions that accommodate new conversations and the handling of possible trepidations. Hugh is a sought-after speaker on public policy, leadership, transformational strategy, and he pushes tenacity to establish new narratives pertaining to change, transformation, and leadership. So, Hugh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and I'm truly looking forward to our conversation today. Well, I have had so much fun preparing for this. We joked before I hit record that this could be like an eight-hour interview. So I'm going to ask you four leadership questions, and then we're going to have four fun questions. So if you're ready for a thought-provoking conversation, I'm ready to dig in. Let's go. Hugh, your career has been phenomenal. I, I have ordered your book, and I'm excited to chat about it. The title is Humanizing Leadership. And if that's not all encompassing to the name of this podcast, Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership, I don't know what is. So my question for you is, I know your book is not a leadership guide, and I know it's not Leadership 101 that you allude to, but you wanted to really draw a picture and a vision of what a leader is supposed to look like. So my question to you is, where did this book come from and how many years did it take you to write it? And is it all encompassing of your actual career? Gee, how much time do we have? Um, great question. Uh, so it started with framing, I guess, the outline of the book. And what struck me in doing that was um, the human element of leadership. And, and as you suggested in your opening, I'm a junkie for leadership studies. I have a massive library of leadership books. And 
when I thought about my favorite books, they were great on the technical side, but what I found was missing was the human face of leadership. And so my, my first thought in constructing the book was an attempt to put a human face on the art of leadership. And that art form of leadership, the instrument that drives it, is self. And when it's done properly within the human system, and again, organizations are multi-layered, complex, organic human systems, those systems thrive and progress and continue to evolve into future states when the relationship patterns between humans in those human systems is healthy. And so where does this come from? It basically comes from lifelong learning, both in the work environment, but also in the home environment. And through the process of writing, I not only rediscovered my passion, but I also rediscovered the many journeys that I had been on as both a formal and informal leader. And so to bring all of that alive through 42 leadership vignettes, I anchor the vignettes on, quote, the leadership science, but I try to put that human face on it by giving it a personal touch and in many cases, share a bit about my vulnerability, my learning as a leader, which includes setbacks and then learning from those setbacks, but truly trying to become the best of me. And I truly believe when leaders focus on the best of them, they enable others to become the best of who they are. And this is why you're on my show. You've you've just mentioned so many great qualities within heart-centered leadership. And vulnerability is just that openness to own your character flaws, own those setbacks, like you called them, those fail forwards is how I frame them. And when you accept the setbacks, those fall forwards, and you learn from them, you're taking your leadership to a whole other level with your team and being able to convey, demonstrate through behavior, through verbal expression you can still be a strategist in your progression when you're failing. So I love the open-mindedness of how you frame that. And I'm super excited to get your book and I love the title. And I'm going to ask you my next question, which all my guests get, what imperfections have you brought to your heart-centered leadership? (laughs) How big a list do you want? (laughs) What imperfections? Well, a number of imperfections. Uh, One, um, I like to move fast. And um, it's both an imperfection because sometimes in your haste, you make waste and and you're not slowing down enough to listen, to check in on the environment, the intelligence of the environment. Um, 
on the balancing side, but sometimes you need speed because in leadership velocity uh, to move things forward is important. And in the middle, I think, is the, the kernel of learning. When I, when I think back of my career, I think of the thousands of conversations that I was either witness to or contributed to that if one had slowed down, if one had asked questions rather than provided answers, if one would have listened to understand, one could have eliminated a lot of human suffering, pain, waste, and redo in an organization. So when I think about going back to imperfect, what was often driving that perfect, imperfect, if you will, imbalance, particularly in the early part of my career where I don't think I was that different than a lot of emerging leaders. I, I had to wear a face of know-it-all because my goodness, I could not share my weakness because I was thinking about that next career opportunity, that next door that would be potentially open for me. And therefore I had to show strength. What I was really doing, I was actually a prisoner shackled by my own, if you will, misplaced ego, shackled by the facade of being all-knowing, shackled by what you just said earlier about my vulnerabilities, and sadly, shackled by not tapping the brilliance of the people who were around me at the time. Hugh, I wish you could see me right now because I'm, I'm smiling ear to ear and I've been awaiting over 70 episodes for someone to frame what you just framed. I've been patiently waiting to hear <laughs> things like leadership velocity, being in the, the center, the kernel of learning, but leaders are prisoners and they are shackled by ego. And it's such a fine balance to put the logic and the leadership and the velocity of leadership ahead of that emotion and not have the ego. My Irish Nana used to say, you're always going to have butterflies before you go on the stage. And that's just to remind you that confidence has its place and ego is at bay. Well, no question. And you talk about your your grandmother. I mean, and sadly, it, it took a long time to recognize the wisdom of my grandfather, who was my greatest mentor in my life. I'll, I'll remember the day as if it was yesterday. He was 94 years of age. He was living with us. I was 16 at the time. And I, I was going to my first, if you will, real job beyond babysitting and delivering of papers, et cetera. And I was a, 
a packer at Overweighty Foods in Dawson Creek, British Columbia. And this was my first real job, if you will. And my grandfather in his no-nonsense manner called me into his bedroom and patted me on the head and he used to call me Huey. And he says, sit down, I have a couple things to say to you. And this was just his standard style, right? And he, he started with a question. He said, first day on the job? And I said, yeah. He said, don't tell them what you can do. Show them what you can do. Two, he said, look through and around the obvious. And three, when they talk to you to give you instruction, listen to hear and to understand. Then he looked at his watch and he says, now get out of here and don't be late. And it took me a while over life to understand the importance of those three lessons he provided. And yet when I think about it, isn't that what leadership is about? Leadership is about delivering, not talking about what you're gonna deliver. Leadership is about paying attention to your environment. And the only way that you can do that, you have to continually look through and around the obvious. You have to challenge the assumptions that people hold, including the assumptions that you hold. And going back to the Irish expression, what he was really saying, you have two ears and one mouth. So listen to hear and understand. Unfortunately, going back to ego, what I learned and I was fell into the trap, often we listen to mount our counter-argument without truly understanding what the issue is in the first place. What a, what a different world we would have if everyone became attentive and empathetic listeners. And I also had the two ears in one mouth <laughs> metaphor said to me, you know what's interesting about that though is I think back to primary school and how did our learning start with show and tell mm -hmm. and, and how that has a place and a foundation in every age, in every decade of our life, because we're all leaders. We don't need to have stature or title. We all lead in some capacity in our life. So what a beautiful, beautiful story about your grandfather. You talked about moving fast and you said, haste, you make waste. I want to get into a discussion in my next question about procrastination and how that stems from really a fear-based behavior. When you think about that, how would you define that if I asked you to tell me in your decades of leadership experience, in 2021, how do you see the definition of a leader versus a manager, Hugh? Wow. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation. And um, I wonder if we do disservice to both by separating them. And I say that because I would hope that part of the evolution of becoming a leader is spending some time as a manager. And, and part of being in management is not only managing a product, a, uh, 
an outcome, but also understanding through that management of it, you're going to be using some leadership skills of relationship building, tapping into the human potential that's on your team. And when I think of the, the new global environment that we're in, this balance between leadership and management is even more crucial. I mean, I would hope if I just take COVID, just take one of the storms, and there's multiple storms out there right now. You've got technology and social media and, and even the whole notion of what does employment look like in the future, because the notion of permanence is kind of disappearing. So, but if I just take COVID-19, I would hope both at the managerial level and at the leadership people level, that people now understand that everything is interconnected. While COVID-19 is a public health issue, we now understand it's a global issue. It's not a Toronto issue or a Vancouver issue or a New York issue or a Tokyo issue. It's a global issue. Oh, by the way, it has a pretty significant impact on the economy. And oh, by the way, what you do with the economy, i.e. you fast start it, do you slow it down, do you allow it to pause, has a pretty significant impact on public health. Oh, oh, by the way, I could tie in environmental change in all of that also. Oh, by the way, I could tie in the social highway of truth and half-truth. And we could go on and on. So where am I going with this? I think the defining characteristic today and going forward of leadership is that connection of sort of heart, will, mind, and really, really fine-tuning not only the emotional intelligence part of the brain, but connecting it to a new skill in environmental intelligence. Because without scanning the environment, both inside and outside, you put yourself and your own learning at risk, but more importantly, you place your organization at risk because of the velocity of change, because of the storms that continue to pound on the organizations. And those who are successful will come out of it stronger. You know, you've heard the expression, and I'm sure you use it in your coaching. If we don't have honest conversations about the big elephants, about the tough issues that nobody wants to talk about, if we continue to procrastinate and protect the status quo, I don't know how you can become an adaptable leader, an adaptable team, and therefore an adaptable organization in an ever-changing sea change of global change. Well, I'm a big proponent in my coaching practice to not coach executives on what they want to hear because that's not why they hire me. That's not why organizations hire me. I think it is an honest conversation to ask good questions to help deflate the big elephant in the room, especially if you're looking at 
organizational design, redesign, change management. And you can't shift a culture till you can shift a behavior because the culture becomes the outcome of the leadership's behavior. And such a good point. I mean, that could be a whole podcast on its own, Hugh. When I, when I think of business acumen, and I love what you said, environmental intelligence, you brought me right back to when I was a medical case manager. When I helped that injured person with the discharge from the hospital, I really started learning about them when I went to their home and sat at the kitchen table. And what was I doing? I was scanning the environment to really know who I was going to be caring for. So think about that across multiple sectors. You know, I think about the hypervigilance of first responders, whether it's police or fire or ambulance attendants, their level of environmental intelligence tells them so much and how they have to convey and communicate that languaging, you know, when they roll into the emergency department to the doctors. So there's so much nonverbal leadership velocity going on. It's such a great point the way you framed it. Leads nicely into my next question. I love the term, the acronym VUCA. But I always looked at it. I'm always the the girl that's got the glass half full or there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's dim. So for those of you learning about leadership, VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Where I go with my coaching practice is like you. I want to put the human face on it. So turning volatility into vision, turning uncertainty into understanding, turning complexity into clarity and ambiguity into agility. So with my last question, Hugh, for leadership is with your decades of experience and always trying to put that human face on things and stay in that central repository that you referred to as the kernel of learning, did you often see the positive slant of VUCA? And if so, how did you get there? You know, it's scary, the sympathetical between our thought processes, because I completely agree with you. I get VUCA because I, and I think it's a, it's a great metaphor analogy of the complexity that I just talked about on a global scale. The trouble with it is it's, it starts and ends with, oh my goodness, this is so big. This is so scary that I'm sure for a lot of folks, they just say, I don't know, I'm just gonna stay where I'm at because it's a lot safer. I think it should be flipped. I quite agree with you. I mean, if you want to come out of the storms, you better have a clear vision. And that vision, not only an understanding, better be understood at every level in the organization. It better become, if you will, the check-in to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing today honoring the vision that we put on paper? Far too often, these are all wonderful words within a picture frame on a wall, and then nobody ever looks at it. It's about caring. It's about caring for people. It goes back to the premise of my book. 
organizations are not strange objects and abstracts that sit out there in time and space. They are human systems. And when the relationship patterns within those systems are healthy, magic happens. And when the patterns are unhealthy, organizations decay, people suffer, we end up with, forget absenteeism and turnover, we end up with presenteeism, which is even worse, because those are now the cognitively impaired who show up every day to work because they have to, they have nowhere else to go, but they're not happy and they're not productive and they're suffering. So I quite agree with you. I mean, in the book I talk about, we all have human hard drives and our hard drives have been shaped and they continue to be shaped by our perspectives, our perceptions, our reactions, our expectations. And unfortunately, just like a computer, as our hard drives swell with personal insight and understanding, we also develop, and it goes back to your point, various coping mechanisms, biases, habits to protect. Just like a computer, we create firewalls, antivirus software, and security programs. One of my favorite books, going back to my library on leadership, is a book that was written many years ago by Ron Short called Learning and Relationship. And the essence of the book, he says, which had a huge impact on my development as a leader, he basically says that we all live a rich life inside our head. We continue to react, interpret, infer, and provide meaning to our own experience. We create, we author, we edit, I guess we could say we produce, direct, in our own internal drama. So the point that I got from this, if we as leaders do not spend time honestly looking in the mirror, reflecting on who we are, what we're about, how we deliver the leadership that we were hired to deliver in the organization, I don't know how we move forward with truly embracing the notion that people matter and relationships therefore make the difference. It doesn't matter what sector we choose to lead in. We are all in the people business. And I love the way you frame that. And I, I agree with you. I think what struck me the most was you know, I think about fancy offices and you talked about having the photo on the wall with the quote, but if the culture and the people in that building aren't living what's listed or shown in that photo on the wall, it's like you said, it's a facade. So getting uncomfortable, having those hard conversations, getting unshackled from the ego and really tapping into the vulnerability and finding the best of me as you framed it, but really being attentive and present to environmental intelligence. So many nuggets, Hugh. I'm going well, sw- to switch gears. Yeah, can I just say one? Absolutely, thing? yeah. Completely agree. Look, you've been there. You've heard it. I've seen it. I've created it. You know, 
with, with, with a team, a wonderful frame on the wall that says, our people are our greatest resource. Okay. And then we wrap it with wonderful words like respect and diversity of inclusion. Okay, I get it. But then we have more people off on sick leave. Our long-term disability claims are going through the roof. Uh, mental health issues, anxiety issues are prevalent everywhere. So how are we honoring, forget our vision, but how are we honoring that wonderful statement that we've just made that our people are our greatest resource? How much time does the board how much time does the C-suite actually spend in conversation about the people resource versus the fiscal resource? Those are the kinds of questions I think leaders need to ask over and over and over again. Well, it's a question that I've crafted in my coaching practice and ROI has two meanings. The first one, obviously, return on investment is the fiduciary part, but the fiduciary part cannot be achieved unless you honor the second meaning of that acronym, which is return on impact, which is your people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so aligned with you on that. I'm going to switch gears now and ask you my, my fab four. These are four <laughs> fun questions that we want to know about you. Okay. So just what's ever on the top of your mind. First question, tell us something we don't know about you. What you don't know about me. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you two things you don't know about me. One, my passion is my motorcycle. So I ride a Harley Davidson road King and it's my therapy, if you will, because, you know, this is about 700 pounds between my legs when I'm on the road. It's big. It's noisy. And so when I go for a cruise on my bike, I have to, it has to be me, my bike, and the road ahead. And everything else has to be kind of wiped out of my head because that's how I have to stay safe, right? So when I come back from a ride, whether it's a half an hour ride or a half day ride, I have been renewed, <laughs> So that's on that side. Um, I, I have a passion for history in a different way. So I'm a pretty significant, if you will, stamp collector. And what I love about stamps, each stamp has a face. Behind that face is a history, but more importantly, particularly the used stamps. And it's just part of maybe it's my quirkiness. What I dream about on used stamps, particularly the older ones, the real old ones, is where was that letter going to? Who was the receiver of that letter that this stamp came off? And what story, if that stamp could speak, would it speak to me about? So it's not just stamp collecting. There's kind of a grounding in stamp collecting that gives me not only a visual of time and time development but also history so those are two things it's it's funny you said that because there's certain places that i've gone with my family and i've often turned to my husband and said i almost can feel what it was like back in the 17 or the 1800s you get that kind of that intuitive impression of of the history and the energy of that time so what a unique experience with the stamps and i i can so relate to that yeah. 
My second question is, do you have an aspiration or a mantra for this year that you'd love to share with us? Yeah, and I, I, I guess my, my aspiration, my mantra for the year would be to everybody, really work hard on becoming the best of you. And by doing that, I think you'll, you will enable others to become the best of them. Well, that's beautiful. Third question. If you were sitting lecturing in a room, which I know you do do, it might be virtual, and you've got either a group of new up-and-coming leaders or we often see the accidental leader, what's one piece of advice you could give them to start their leadership journey? I guess it would be advice from Warren Bennis of many, many years ago, who for me is kind of the historical leader of what I would view to be today, we would call contemporary leadership. And I remember in a, you know, we're now talking 35, 40 years ago in a piece that he wrote, he said, we all have our own raw material use it well don't walk around in borrowed clothes and that always resonated with me because what he was really saying you have to find your own stride on leadership and it has to be your path it has to be your footsteps just like me and probably like you Was I influenced by the leadership of others? Yes. But we all came into this world with our own DNA. We're all unique. And so, yes, learn from others. Learn from your experiences. But don't be a copycat. Be you. Spend time figuring out who you are. So that would be my advice. And I guess I always end my sessions with, particularly with the emerging young leaders, they actually give me hope. Because in the middle of all the negative, going back to your notion of VUCA, listening to all and watching all the negative that's happening in the world, I tell you, when I'm in the company of young emerging leaders, they give me hope. Because these are smart aware people. Uh, I have to be on my toes to be in front of them. They they think I've given them a gift. I tell them, you have no idea the gift that you gave me over the last hours just to be in your company. And I I would hope leaders would, goes back again to relationships. I'd hope leaders would understand that within their organization, they have people who come to work every day with gifts. Figure out a way to tap those gifts within the organization. Well, I'm just going to put a period there. That's a mic drop statement. And I agree with you. I, I am filled with hope. I am coaching. I mean, the millennials are starting to come in now at that executive C-suite level and It's a great time to be alive and witness it. So I am with you on that. 
My last question, Hugh, is share with us what you want your legacy to be. So great question. And uh, I've never been asked that question before, but my, my response would be something along the lines of Hugh was here and he worked hard to make a difference. But your question prompts for me another observation. I end my book with a quote from my favorite author, Mark Twain. I love Mark Twain because he had the, the ability to take simple words and within a sentence frame those words into profound learnings. And so the last comment in my book is him, and I'd like to read it to you. It is not the truth that we do not know that does us in, but the truths we know and don't practice. And to me, that sums up the leadership potential and the gap that we currently have. Well, Hugh, you are giving me a serendipitous goosebump moment because I end the show with a quote and I was going to grab that quote out of your book. So uh, <laughs> there couldn't be more alignment here. So <laughs> I'm like, this is great. He's reading the quote out of his book that I was going to end the show with. We're so aligned. This is perfect. <laughs> I'm, I am more than ecstatic and thrilled to have crossed paths with you. I'm very, very much looking forward to my book arriving. And I want to thank you for sharing your time, your expertise, and just all those brilliant little nuggets or kernels of learning, as you like to call them, with us today on the podcast. Well, it's been fun. And I've, I've enjoyed this and I, I thank you for the invitation. And if, if you see at some other point in time, you would like to continue this conversation, I would be game. This, this has been a lot of fun. Well, you're stuck with me now, Hugh. That's how it works. Once you're on the show, you're, you're in, you're in the tribe. So we're gonna, we're gonna put all the details so you can uh, get a hold of Hugh and read his book and learn more about him below on the episode description. And I want to thank all of you for following us. If you like the show, we'd love for you to share it. We'd love for you to give us a rating and a review. And as Hugh says, we can all hop on that train of leadership velocity, but we need to lift and rise together. So thanks for joining me once again. This is Deb Crow on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. <laughs>